Welcome to the Book a Week podcast, jointly hosted by the SEPT University Library and the Center for Research on Architecture and Urbanism. Hi, and welcome to this episode of a Book a Week podcast. I'm Sunaina Shah. I'm a practicing architect based in Ahmedabad. My research interests lie in the areas of architectural practice, history, and theory, and it is through these that I engage with the built world. I'm particularly interested in issues related to modernity, art and architectural history, cultural studies, and social theory. Today, I'm here with Dr. George Michel, a leading scholar on South Asian art and architecture. His PhD thesis at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London was on the architecture of Chalukyan temples in and around Badami Pattadakur. Since then, Dr. Michel has worked extensively on the architecture of the Deccan region, Bengal, Gujarat, Rajasthan, and India in general. He has spent over 30 years researching and cataloging the city of Hampi. The subject of our discussion today is his book titled The Late Temple Architecture of India, 15th to 19th Centuries, Continuities, Revivals, Appropriations and Innovations, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. This book is an extensive and rare look into temple architecture that belongs to a period in India that has on the large part been neglected from scholarly pursuit. 15th to 19th centuries are usually referred to as the Islamic period, the colonial period, etc. and the temples built during this time were thought to be not as interesting. Welcome George, we are so happy to have you here with us today to talk about a book that I have seen develop so closely. Thank you. Yes. Um, so let's get started. I was wondering, how did this um, idea come to you, considering that these are late structures and they've largely been excluded from scholarly attention? Well, in fact, that's why I think <laughs> they are worth considering, because they have been <laughs> excluded. And I think this comes from the rather rudimentary way of dividing up Indian architectural history before, during, and after the so-called Muslim period, Islamic period. And so we have the impression that temple architecture stopped. Um, the sultans then built their mosques and tombs, and that's the end of the story. But in fact, that's not at all what happened. Mm. So this, this phase of mm. um, 15th century onwards mm. is very fascinating because there's another architectural presence in India, that's mm. of mosque building and tomb building, and mm. this has its impact on temple building. Mm. So I think it's just a whole chunk of Indian architectural history that mm. was overlooked. And there's also a prejudice, Sunena, mm. um, among art historians especially, that if it's mm. older, it's mm. better. Mm. If it's 11th, 12th century, it must be of higher quality than mm. sort of 15th. 16th or 17th centuries. Mm -hmm. And it's not an argument that I wanted to get into. I just want to demonstrate that a different and high quality is there in some of these wonderful buildings mm -hmm. all over India. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. Um. Where do you think this this sort of um, sense that they're not worthy comes from? I mean, and and does this does this sense um, or this void affect a study or pursuit of such a book? And and how? And would you say that now this this attitude or this sense towards newer temples is changing? Um. I'll start with the last part of your question. I don't know in the um, schools of art history and architectural history in India and outside India, I still think there is this idea that mm. if it's earlier, it's more mm. worthy of attention. Mm. Therefore, if it's later, you know, why take the trouble because it's just repetitive, there's nothing innovative. There's a sort of, there's a prejudice, a mm. judgment. So I think little by little, mm. as uh, students are thinking about other issues like social history, cultural history, religious mm. history, let's say they're doing all about the Krishna cult at Braj, mm. you know, Vrindavan, mm. then they will look at the temples of Vrindavan, which are basically mm. 15th, 16th century and later. So I think impetus will come from parallel fields of study Mm. But the connoisseurship, as we call it, mm. meaning that if it's older, it's better, mm. it still prevails. But mm. I have to add that this was not there in the 19th century. If you mm. look at the first publications on Indian art and architecture, by many of them were by colonial people, of course. Mm. They just looked at everything. They photographed everything, Humpy mm -hmm. included. They didn't care if it was from which century it was. It was just exotic and interesting. So this prejudice way of looking at India as having a classical age, age of perfection, then it was downhill mm -hmm. after that, is something that happened in the 20th century. Right, right. Um, could you also talk a little bit about the time frame that you're dealing with in this book, which is 15th to 19th centuries? Um, what sort of uh, we we talked about this a little bit, but what marks fifteenth century as a beginning for this, and and what happens um, if we are talking about um, you know sort of uh, Muslim rule? What happens bef in between? You know what happens between right. um, that time? Well, there I think there was this trauma, hmm. the invasion of northern India hmm. by. Um, military um, chiefs, you know, from Central Asia, mm. who then became sultans and ruled and then um, conquered large parts of the subcontinent. Mm. This caused an interruption in temple building. Mm. There's no doubt about it. Whether mm. temples were destroyed, mm. um, mutilated, abandoned, dismantled, many things happened, but basically the patronage of Hindu and Jain architecture came mm. to a sudden, abrupt stop. Mm. And it happened in different moments in mm. different parts of India, just depending when, like for in the south of India, uh, temple building continued well into the 13th century mm. and then stopped. In northern India, it stopped earlier. So there is this break which is historical. And mm. then there is this revival. Mm. And there are a couple of temples, I would have to think very hard from the 14th century, and I think maybe one or two crept into the book, but it's really from the 15th century that things start to get going in different parts of India. And then it continues and accelerates 
all the way up through the 19th century. And it's not that it stops at the end of the 19th century. It's, such a, it's just that I stopped. I thought that's enough now. I can't <laughs> go into all of the 20th century temples because that's just too much material. <laughs> so it was, from my point of view, a convenient but unnatural cutoff. Temples, of course, were built after uh, uh, year, right. the year 1900 and continue to be built, as you know today. Yes. And I think in my preface, I mentioned this. So it, it, it has a historical framework. This is, mm. this is it. And mm. Bengal has a different pattern to Tamil Nadu, which has a different pattern to Gujarat. Right. Right. They all fit right. into this 15th, 19th century yes. span. Yes, yes. What I what I find very interesting here is that in order to talk about um, a revival of of a certain building culture, we first need to talk about destruction. You know, and and um, could you elaborate on it? And how do you deal with this in the book? Well, it's a very vexing topic. Yes. There's a there's yes. a tremendous range of opinions yeah. about what yeah. actually happened. Mm. At mm. one end of the story, you have people say, "Well, um, these Muslim invaders, these conquerors, these these army chiefs, they pulled everything down. They mm. were ruthless." Mm. And then yeah. on the other hand of the story, you have um, people arguing that they only pulled down things which were of um, political importance. There was no reason to pull down every temple. It was a, of course, you could pillage it for its treasure, but mm. why dismantle it? Because it's a lot of work. Mm. Um, you only wanted to destroy the temples which were identified with the ruling previous ruling class. Mm. So at Warangal in mm. um, Telangana, for example, uh, if you wanted to take over the city of the Hindu Kakatiya rulers, you had to destroy their temple and build a mosque mm. on the site of the temple. Mm. In other parts of India, things just languished and they didn't bother too much. They just took a bit of treasure. And, you know, so it's a complete range of different situations. And I think I just mentioned this in brief mm. because sometimes there was enough left of an earlier temple that in later times could be restored or could be learned about mm. so that architects in the 16th and 17th centuries could see what had been built before and learned. And of course, some of these groups of builders survived. Mm. They then started to build mosques and tombs and some of these um, buildings for the use of Muslim people, as you know very well, were built in Hindu styles, or let's say in temple styles, because mm. that's what the builders were used to. And mm. you know that in Ahmedabad, mosques are filled with bits of Hindu and Jain temples. Yes. And when they didn't have enough bits, they created sort of um, Hindu and Jain uh, uh, you know, replacement bits like like ceilings and columns and and walls. Mm. So there's an overlap between these traditions. Right. Um, when we speak of revival, we in invariably arrive at um, the 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 essence or the core idea of what a temple really means. Um, why so? How how do these revived structures compare, or or what kind of things begin to happen? Uh, well, first we have a situation in which um, patrons and builders must have been very well 
um, instructed on mm. what had been built before. Mm. And sometimes mm. a patron said, I want a building that looks like this from the mm. past. Mm. And mm. the builders are able to reproduce pretty well. Mm. And sometimes mm. it's very difficult to distinguish a 16th century building from a 12th or 13th century original, especially let's say in Tamil Nadu. Mm. Or, you know, if you go to Nasik, there's mm. a fantastic mm. temple that looks like um, a pre-Islamic building. You know, mm. you look at me, think, my goodness, it's like an 11th, 12th century building. All the detail is there. Mm. Um, it's laid out on the same way. It has the same succession of spaces from porch all the way through to the Gabagriha, the mm. same shikara. So they're very carefully put together to reproduce mm. the past. And Sunaina, what is quite interesting is that some of these revived temples, or revivalist temples, mm. do not bear foundation dates. The patron and the builder took trouble, I think, not to say that they'd done this. Mm -hmm. And you could say, why, since they'd spent all the money and all the effort, why didn't they then proclaim mm -hmm. their effort? Because I think they wanted their temple to be timeless. By not actually putting their name on it or the date, the temple therefore became part of an unbroken tradition. Right. And this is what is important in the revivalist part yeah of the story, which is only one part of the story, I think, that I have to tell. But it's a very interesting one, and you can you can find it in different parts of India in different yes. ways. Yes, yes. Um, the scope of, of the book is extremely large. So how does one go about collecting material, and how does one narrow down on material? <laughs> what is, I mean, what is traveling for such a book like? What is the editorial process like? And, and of course, you know, because there's no way that one can have an exhausting sort of catalog of, for such a subject. So how, how do you tackle all of these things? Right. Well, it's, of course, a selection. Yes. And um, uh, it was based on my judgment of those temples that were architecturally of greater interest. Mm. Or, or, you know, if there'd be a whole lot of similar interest, I would just select one. Mm. Um, there were certain parts of the story mm. that I had a lot of material on. Um, for instance, Bengal. Mm. I had done an exhaustive book on Bengal brick temples. So I knew the range of material it was just a matter of selecting which ones in West Bengal and Bangladesh were worth including. Mm. Um, for, for the Vijayanagara period, that is uh, Peninsular India, 14th to 16th centuries, I had done, um, edited the volume for the Encyclopedia of Indian mm. Temple Architecture. So I had a good range of stuff to draw on. Other areas like Rajasthan, Gujarat, Maharashtra, Himachal Pradesh, mm. um, uh, you know, the central part of India, I had to be very selective and I was able to travel a great deal. It took quite a few years of traveling, Sunaina. Mm. This wasn't put together in a weekend. <laughs> this was many years. I did a special trip to Rajasthan, yes. a whole month yes. in Rajasthan. Wow. I think you were with me on some trip in Gujarat. Mm -hmm. I did a special trip with John Fritz in Bihar, and mm. we went to see things and discover things. I spent time in Vrindavan. Mm. I had a look mm. in Delhi. I knocked around in Delhi with Nalini Thakur. So it was an adventure of travel, mm. selecting, mm. and then what could I photograph, what was I able to get the image? Because I thought without a photograph, mm. it's not going to be any use to me or to any students. So if there was no photograph, Hmm. I couldn't go there, I couldn't photograph it, or I was unable or 
not permitted to photograph, then I didn't include it. Mm. So I think that was also a selection, and getting the photographs was quite a project in itself. Yes, you I'm know, sure. because there's yeah. so many restrictions in so many places. Yes, and yes. then and then you helped me uh, preparing the plans. I think you even measured a few few temples for me for this book. But I had to gather the drawings. Not all the temples have plans, sadly, mm. but as many as I thought I could put together. Mm -hmm. So it is a whole process of selection. And as I wrote in the preface, there will be readers who will say, well, why didn't you include this one or that mm -hmm. one? I yeah. can't satisfy yeah. everybody's, um, you know, uh, view on it. There will be somebody from Tamil Nadu, some mm -hmm. cranky individual from a particular town who said, well, why didn't you include the temple in my town? Yeah. And I'll say, well, it's not that I didn't want to. It's just that I couldn't include every temple in Tamil Nadu. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that sort of. Yeah. Yes. Um, right. So then let's let's take it another way. Um, if you had to select and even even sort of narrow down further, let's say for young students to kind of get introduced to late temple architecture, let's say around five or ten, um, which ones would you pick? What, what kind of highlights this idea of continuity and revival and innovation? Are you asking me if you said, well, pick a typical example or the best example of revival or innovation? Yeah. I'd have to think about this. Mm. But um, um, I think it's a, it's a sort of unfair question because <laughs> it's, a, it's a value judgment question. Yes, yes. But I think that if, if students, let's say, say, oh, we don't want to go through this whole book. It's too much. You know, I don't want to look at all these things. Mm. If they looked at the... Um, the first, let me see, how many pages do we have? The first 100 pages or so is mm. an introduction. Mm. And it's, it has full-page illustrations. Mm. The rest of the book have small illustrations. If they looked at this first part of the book, mm. they'll see a selection of key temples. Mm. Mm. You know, mm. so there will be something from Tamil Nadu, something from Gujarat, something from Assam, you know, mm. Uh, mm. something from Vrindavan. There'll mm. be one example from these different regions, mm. each of which um, I think illustrates a particular pattern mm. of the architectural styles. Mm. So that's one way to go, or Maheshwar, the Ahilyabai's Chatri, mm. which is a 19th century, is a superb example of a particular type. So mm. students, if you don't want to, you don't have time, or you're not, you don't like looking through books, just look through the first big photographs in the books. Mm. This will mm. give you a selection. <laughs> um, okay, so... Moving on slightly to a, to a more different uh, topic, how did you get introduced to India and interested in India? What's the story? Oh, well, this is a biographical question. Yes. You know, my life, you mean. Well, if this is going out to architecture students hmm. uh, or listen to biography, you have to understand that I was also a student of architecture. My school was in Melbourne, Australia. Mm. Um, we don't have any historical ancient architecture mm. in Melbourne beyond 1850, I think. Mm. Anyhow, there was a student trip in a summer holiday to India, like a sort of a student exchange, mm. which I joined. Mm. It was cheap. And it was in our summer holidays which is your winter season, December, mm. January, February. So an excellent time to come to India. So I came for two and a half months, I think, to India. 
And mostly I traveled around on my own and visited places that were illustrated in books on Indian art, which I went and looked at in the Bombay Museum, I still remember. And then I traveled home to Melbourne via Bangkok and Cambodia and went to Angkor, which, mm. Sunaina, have you been to Angkor yourself? Yes, I have. No, it's one of the great, great experiences. Huh? Yes, yes, absolutely. So I got back to Australia, very fascinated with this place, India, but not so fascinated with my architecture course, I have to tell mm. you. But I struggled on and finished the course. And then I was advised that if I wanted to learn more about India and Indian architecture, I had to leave Australia. There was nowhere I could study more. Mm. So I came to what we call SOAS in London Mm. and eventually uh, was asked to do a PhD. They said, what do you have to do? I didn't know what a PhD was. Mm. They said, you have to take a subject and study it. Mm. And I said, well, the way I can study it is to make measured drawings because I'm an architect Mm. and I can get architectural help. So I selected the temples in and around Badami. Mm. So I went back to India and became immersed in examining that. So I, it was, came, that's my background. It's very personal. It comes mm. from travel. It doesn't come really from books mm. or other people. It's a personal interest. Yes. And as you know, ever since 50 years ago, I began work at, Ham, at Badami. I have been interested in this subject. Yes, yes, yes. And um, I mean, so Hampi, because, you know, um, it also falls within this late category. And how did how did Hampi um, happen? And what about it interest, interested you when you first sort of encountered it? And um, what was it like to be working there in those days? Um, well, when I first, um, I didn't have an idea of working at Hampi when I went there for the first time. It was much too big, mm. much too late. Mm. It didn't look like Badami, where mm. I had been before. Mm. And it took a few visits, casual visits, as mm. a sort of tourist, mm. which was very difficult, Sunaina. There was nowhere to stay. There was no yes. bottled water. Not, not an easy place, yes. as yes. your father found out when he made the visits. Um, <laughs> So little by little, I realized that here was this amazing place, Mm. which was the earliest um, Hindu imperial city that we could look at. Mm. It wasn't the earliest Hindu imperial city that ever existed. Mm. We knew about capitals of the Cholas, capitals of the Chandelas, but you couldn't see anything of these place, of these kings except mm. their temples. When you went to Hampi, you could see the remains of palaces, courtly structures, elephant stables, fortifications, all sorts of things. Mm. There was a whole architectural world there, mm. which was above the ground, either ruins or relatively well-preserved, that had not been um, considered as a city. So it was a very fascinating subject. But many people said to me, oh, why do you want to study Vijayanagara? It's so late, you know, it's 14th, 15th century. It's not not like the Cholas. You know, not everybody thought it was a good idea. Mm. Uh, They don't say that anymore. But in the early 80s, you see, it was was still not really a subject Mm. that was considered very prestigious. Mm. And then I met John Fritz, an American archeologist, and John and I started to go regularly your father came, 
other architecture students came. We had a long history, thanks to Snehal, with SEPT. So I think almost every year we had some represent representative student, you know, from mm. SEPT. Um, so we had a nice connection. And of course, the site was magical. Hmm. So part hmm. of the allure was not just the study of a Hindu imperial city, but hmm. this fabulous landscape. Hmm. And as you and any of the students who are listening to this know, it's one of the most wonderful places to visit in all of India. Yes. But it was tough. Yes. For the yes. first years, we didn't have a proper camp. Yes. Uh, food was difficult. Mm -hmm. But students mm -hmm. came, and they came from Australia. They came from Britain. They came from America, mm -hmm. Germany. We mm -hmm. had all sorts of people. So it was a fantastic sort of, um, you know, study uh, mm -hmm. period. Students mm. would come, we do the drawings on site. It was a whole experience. Mm. And I think out of that experience came the enormous amount of material that we gathered and the various publications that you know mm. about. Mm. What what year are we talking about here and how many how long did did this process last? Mm. Well mm. we I um it it occupied the 1980s and the 1990s. Mm. So around about 2000 uh, and 2001, that winter season was our last proper fieldwork season mm. and in the years since we have published of course a great deal yeah. we have been finalizing our data and now we are in the process of um, archiving our maps our drawings our transparencies our black and white photographs and giving them to the british library because okay. this is a place where all this material will go yeah. so that students and scholars in the future can um, reach, uh, have access to this material. Mm. So this is the easiest place for us. Mm. Uh, and they have agreed to take it and they know how to look after it. Right. So we've got, right. I think we have already given more than 2,000 maps and drawings, and I'm already up to about 2,500 with the transparencies. And then there are all the black and white photographs, not only by us, but by all the photographers mm. who came and worked with us at the site. Mm. So it's an enormous quantity of stuff mm. which mm. now will be sitting at the British Library under the VRP archive, the Vijayanagara Research Project Archive. All right. Um, and lastly, you've you've written so many guidebooks, and you know, I mean, the Penguin Guide to Monuments of India being one of the best known to me, at least. Um, so why guidebooks? How did they happen? Well, I think because I have never been really part of the um, the academic corridors, but I've been out there at sites studying and traveling, mm. I'm interested to reach a broad readership, mm. whether they're students, travelers, interested people, or people who are not yet interested but who would like to become interested. One way of doing that is writing in a particular way, books with nice illustrations, writing in a language that people can understand, not mm. too much Sanskritic terminology. Mm. And guidebooks can have a lot of condensed information. Mm. 
Mm. I have used them when I visit other countries. You know, um, I understand the process. You arrive in a town, you arrive in an archaeological site, you arrive at a monument. You want some basic information. You don't want to read a 120-page argument about the dating of the doorway or the problems with understanding um, a column or a thing. You just want everything encapsulated. Mm. So it takes some effort to do that but I think it's really worth it and I'm very pleased that something like the penguin guide you have found useful and other people tell me it's a great way to start planning their travels and what to see when they get there Mm -hmm. and now Mm -hmm. the foundation that I'm connected with the Deccan Heritage Foundation the DHF Mm -hmm. we are just planning our 14th guidebook Mm -hmm. and these are as you probably know these are attractively produced with color illustrations, Mm. 120, Mm. 130 page booklets. Mm. They cost 500 rupees. They're available in India. And we think that this is a worthwhile thing we should do because it introduces the heritage of historical places, cities, monuments, etc. We've done Badami, we've done Hampi, of course, we've done Hyderabad, Golconda, we've done Warangal. We're now planning one on Mysore and Shirangapatna. And we've done one on on, uh, the Jewish heritage of Bombay, the Jain heritage of Karnataka. So if it's in Maharashtra, Telangana, Andhra or Karnataka, then we um, are trying to cover not every historical place, but a selection of them, or the Portuguese forts of Goa and nearby mm. and Mumbai. So, and I think that this area of India has a huge range of different things, mm. and we are able to um, recruit financial support and um, scholars to write on this. So, I've been involved in this sort of guidebook project for the mm. Deccan Heritage Foundation, but it comes out of the Penguin Guidebook. Yes. Or the South, yes. you know, the Blue Guide to South India project. Yes, yes. They take, in fact, it's a lot of work doing a guidebook, but yes. more people write, read the guidebooks than mm. read the Encyclopedia of Indian Temple Architecture, which you cannot carry with you. True, yes. When yes. you travel. You need something. Now, of course, it's an app. Mm. <laughs> so so uh, we are in the process of working out how do we turn our guidebooks or the information mm. in the guidebooks into apps so when you go with your iPhone, Mm. you can get the information. So I think this is an important task for mm. a specialist. Mm. 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 Well, I think I think that was great. Um, the students have a lot to take from this. And thank you so much, George, for your time and for talking to us about your book and your work. And um, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Suneda, great. And um, I'm looking forward to um, uh, hearing from students from Ahmedabad. It's always a school that I feel I have a, a particular connection with ever since I met your father when he was a student in mm. 1979. So it's a long association through um, all sorts of, of students who came and now through you and, and Arthur, who was at the library and various of your, your professors. So thank you very much, Sunaina. And I hope this is a useful um, blog for everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do not miss to like, share and subscribe to our podcast available on all your favorite podcast apps.